Um, it's just a few years ago. We've got some great friends in Indiana. They're farmers, farming families, and we've known them for, I guess, 30, 35 years. And the wife's name is Katura. Anybody know any other Katuras? It's kind of a unique. Have, have you ever heard of Katura? It's a unique name, isn't it? Okay, a few of you. So Katura calls my wife and she said, Lloyd is going to turn 50. Uh, in a couple of months, would you consider us driving from Indiana to Florida? We got this giant SUV, and um, we'd like to take you guys and your boat all the way to Marathon Keys. We've never been to the Keys before. Our kids have never been. Your three kids, our three kids, your boat, our SUV, take one of your vehicles. We said, so two weeks we worked this deal out. Absolutely. Awesome. This would be a great trip. So they come about two days before we're supposed to take off. And Lloyd and I go get the boat, and we put it on the trailer, and we back it up into the uh, driveway. So the motor now is next to the garage. Are you picturing this? So all we have to do is drive straight out the driveway on that morning. So for about a day and a half, we're loading it up full of waters and coolers and fishing pole and tackle and everything but the kitchen sink. We got that boat just loaded down. So on that morning, we're going to leave at 4.30. And the only time I ever make lists... Is, is when I do a fishing trip. You'll ask the kids. Erica's in the room. The only time I make extensive lists are, are when it's a fishing trip. So I got lists of everything so we won't forget anything. And so at 4.33, we all pray. We jump in the car. We go three feet. And the fishing poles went up through the basketball goal in our driveway. And we're scraping the the. Now the basketball goal is going down the driveway. Poles are snapping. We get out of the car, and I thought, my gosh, we've gone three feet. (laughs) We have 375 miles to go. This is not going to go well. First day we get down there, we're lobster fishing. It's the opening day of lobster season. We're lobster fishing, and we've got another family from Harborside. We're buddy boating, and that other wife found some lobster, so I take a marker, and I jump in and mark the spot, and I get back into our boat, get going, swimming back to our boat. The motor's off, but the engine was straight. Instead of turning to the right, I kick the prop trying to get back in. I don't even look. I know there's blood. I know there's a problem. Blood everywhere. I got a major problem. I get seven stitches that first day. Doctor told me my vacation was over. Keep your foot elevated. Whatever you do, do not get this wet. (laughs) So Lloyd and my friend Phil Huff, we got the bright idea to go fishing the next day and to get a black plastic bag and wrap my foot in a black plastic bag. And Phil had some of that electrical uh, black duct tape. You don't know that black tape. So we duct taped, you know, the bag. So we're, it was great. I got my foot up. I'm enjoying. They're bringing me waters. I feel like the king. You know, this is wonderful. Until we got about 25 miles and we got in the storm of our life. About drowned that day. So I thought this would be a great trip if I could skip the first three feet, if I could just skip the first day of lobster season, if I could just skip the fishing trip, right? I think that's what we do with the genealogy. I think we skip it. How many of you, when you start reading the book of Matthew, come on, I do the same thing. How many of you skip those 17 verses? All right, you've already had communion, fess up, confess your sin. You know why we skip it? Because we don't get it. The story is most unusual. It starts off in a most unusual way, and quite frankly, we don't understand it. 
We don't see what's the big deal about all those names that we can't even pronounce and all those different generations. And so we skip the genealogy. Is he really going to preach on the genealogy today? Did I really get up this early to come to church this morning for this? Yes. And my goal this morning is that you will never look at this the same. My goal this morning is you will grasp and understand this in a way that you will never skip it ever again. And after having spent a week immersed in this, I'll never look at it the same. So let's start Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. No, we're not going to go through all 17 verses, but we're going to go through several of these. Here we start off. This is the genealogy. This is the generations of Jesus. This is the generations of Jesus. What does it say? The good teacher, the good guy, the moral leader. No. Right off the bat, Matthew's saying, Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. This is the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew, if you remember from last week, Matthew's a good tax collector. His name was Levi, which means attached to, but he got an apostolic name, which means Matthew, which means gift of God. And Matthew wants everybody to know that this guy called the Messiah has transformed his life. Then he mentions David. And then he mentions Abraham. Now, why would you do that right in the very first sentence? This is sentence number one. Well, this is really simple. You see, Abraham gets you in the nation. And David gets you on the throne. And he's making this really, really clear. You see, all this got started, the nation of Israel got started with Abraham. And Jesus, the Messiah, is in the nation. And everybody knew that the Messiah had to come from the line of David because God said that there would be no end to David's throne. David's throne would last forever. So Abraham gets you in the nation and David gets you on the throne, okay? I want us to make some observations today. And if you've got a bulletin, there are six observations I want you to make about this. And this is more note-taking for you. If you don't have a bulletin, steal one from your neighbor, I don't know, but take some notes somehow. But, but here, these, this is important for you to grasp and for you to have. Here we go. Observation number one. These were real people. Today, even though he wants to tell you about the Messiah, he talks about the humanity of this. There's such a divinity part of this, but there's also such a humanity part of this. So I want you to notice, first of all, that these were real people. Look at these people. Verse, verse two. Here we go. We got Abraham, we got Isaac, we got Jacob, we got the brothers. I mean, you you look at all these guys and you're going, my goodness, these were just real people. These are not like superheroes. These are not the Avengers. This is not Batman. This is not Superman. These are real people. So that's the first observation I want you to make about this. Number two, here's observation number two. The blessings of God On all these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, the brothers, the blessings of God had very little to do with the good works of people. I mean, you think about Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old when he took off, and he failed about the first three tests, right? You look at Isaac. Isaac didn't do so well either, did he? Isaac lied. Jacob? Jacob's name means deceiver. Jacob deceived all these people. The brothers? The brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And you look right off the bat and you begin to realize these guys got blessed from God. God put his hands on Abraham, on Isaac, on Jacob, on Judah, on the brothers, but it had very little to do with the good works of the people. But it had everything to do 
with the mercy and the grace of God. That's going to be your story. That's our application toward the end. It's the mercy and the grace of God is even why we're here today. Number three, observation number three is this. They were all sinners, some just worse than others. And that's us in the room. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to list your sins, but that's us. We're all sinners in the room. Some of you have done some things that you're embarrassed about. All of us have done some things that we have regretted. And so you look at this list and you're going, well, wait a minute. If you're going to make this story up, why are these people a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Observation number four. This is where I want to camp out for a little while this morning. If, see, if you were making the story up, you just wouldn't include Gentile women. You wouldn't. If you were going to tell about the lineage of a Messiah, first of all, ladies, you would never be included in any genealogy. Ladies, you didn't qualify for a court of law, and and your word didn't matter. And so, first of all, we've got women in the genealogy. Second of all, we've got Gentile women. The very first woman in this genealogy is the woman Tamar. Look at this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I want to tell you about Tamar for just a minute. Tamar was a widow. And Tamar was supposed to have relations then with her husband's brother. It's called the law of leveret marriage. And so her husband, Tamar's husband, Ur, died. Actually, he didn't die. God killed him. He was evil, and God took him out. And so he really did. It's a great story. If you don't think the Bible's exciting, go back and read it. It's PG-13 and R-rated in most sections. Anyway, <laughs> God took him out. Just took him out. <clears throat> and so what's supposed to happen is, is the next brother, the next youngest brother, is supposed to have sexual relations with Tamar. And Tamar is then supposed to have a line through the brother, which honored her deceased husband. But the brother knew that the children would never be his. But yet he had all financial responsibility. And so the brother's responsibility was to have children through Tamar and raise up these kids, pay for them to go to college, pay for braces, pay for everything. But he got no inheritance from it. So what, what, what the brother did, his name was Onan, the brother then did, he practiced a, a form of, I can't tell you. I'll blush. Um, Go back and read Genesis 38. I can't do it. I just chickened out, okay? (laughs) I did. I just chickened out. So they're having sexual relations, and he decides that even during this, he's not going to impregnate her. You go back and read the story for yourself, okay? And um, I can't do it. I just, (laughs) I I can't get it out. Um, Anyway, because he didn't impregnate her, we're going to move on from this, God killed him. God took Onan's life. Now what Tamar does is she's now a widow still. She's dressed in widow clothes. And her father-in-law is Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And she disguises herself as a shrine prostitute. And she goes by the road and Judah's wife died. And after he grieved for a little while, he sees Tamar, but he doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. She's dressed as a temple prostitute. And he has sex with her. And basically... She then has a child through her father-in-law. She's in the genealogy. It's a great, you're going to go back and read this today, aren't you? If you've never read anything from the Bible, I guarantee you, you're going to go back and read Genesis 38 today, aren't you? 
That's the first one. Why is she, and we go from bad to worse. The next one is Rahab. Look at the next one. Verse, verse, uh, verse 4, Ram, the father of uh-huh, and uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Look at verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You know what Rahab was? She's a prostitute. Joshua talks about her being a prostitute. Look what uh, Hebrews chapter 11 says. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now Rahab, we're not exactly sure if she was a prostitute or if she was like a madam and she had an inn where they had prostitution going on inside of her house. Aren't you glad you came at 8.30 this morning? This is exciting stuff, okay? Whether she was a prostitute or she just housed prostitutes, her inn was in a sleazy part of the town. And the two spies came to the sleazy section of town and they camped out with her and she protected them and she hid them up on the roof under her flax seats. And so this is an amazing story. She's in the genealogy. I mean, why can't we have Sarah in the genealogy? Why can't we have Rachel in the genealogy? Why can't we have Rebecca in the genealogy? Why can't we have Leah? No, we've got Tamar and we've got Rahab. And then the next one is Ruth. And why is Ruth in this story? Look at the next verse. There's Ruth, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth was a great lady, and she was known for her noble character, but Ruth was a foreigner. Ruth was from Moab. She was a Moabite. Why in the world, if you were making this story up, would you have all these Gentile women in the story, and three of the four are sexually immoral? Here's the next one. Look at the next one, verse 6. Here's the fourth woman. Here's the fourth lady in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been, they don't even mention her name, will they? Uriah's wife. Who is this, folks? This is Bathsheba. That's right. This is Bathsheba. And so here in this story of the genealogy of Christ, we have this amazing humanity. Oh, this is amazing. So I want you to see a little bit about Uriah's wife. She was called a Hittite. And they didn't like the Hittites. The Israelites and the Hittites were not friends. They were enemies. And I just want you to just look at a couple little verses here. Look at the next one, Genesis chapter 26. Here's what they thought. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Barry, the Hittite. And also Basemoth, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of grief. These two wives were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Look at this next verse, too. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. Bathsheba was a Hittite. I'm disgusted with living. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of the land, the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. This is the mother-in-law. She's not happy, is she? This isn't going well. I, I include those verses to show you that Bathsheba was a Hittite. Now, this is amazing to me. That in the genealogy of Jesus, you don't have pure blood, you don't have just Jewish men, you don't have just Jewish women, you don't have just noble people. Three out of four of these women were sexually immoral. And of course, all the men as well. 
So here's observation number four or five, wherever we are. Look at the next observation. Jesus Christ didn't just come for sinners. He came through them. You ever thought about that? Jesus didn't come just for sinners. But in this genealogy, that thought had never hit me before. Jesus, so pure, so holy, so righteous, he came he came through them. So I want you to make sure that you're following me here. This genealogy, it's a most unusual story with a most unusual list. This genealogy has got sexually immoral, liars, deceivers, adulterers, murderers, people who are all about self-promotion, all about self-preservation. In this list of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you have humanity. You have humanity for which Jesus came to save. Now, before I give you observation number six, I want to give you three quick pieces of application because I think these three pieces of application will flat change your life. And they're all about change. And so when you look at this story of these 17 verses that we all skip on a regular basis, I I want you to notice there are three things in this that will change you forever. So here's the first one. I think these 17 verses should change how you feel. I think it should change how you feel. When you look at this story and you see the people that God used, God can use them. Why can't he use us? If God used her, why can't he use you? If God used him, why can't he use me? And and you look at this and see, I I know how we, I've been a pastor for 33 years. And most of our struggles are how we feel. Because we know that we've all made mistakes and we know that we're all sinners and we know that we've all done things that we've regretted. Some have done a whole lot more than others. But I know it's how you feel. That's what trips you up. Because you know that you're not the person that you should be or could be. Just a couple weeks ago, there were 16 of us megachurch pastors invited to a conference. A a particular group invited all 16 of us there. There were like five different states there. So there's 16 of us men in a room, and some people funded it and brought us there and fed us and housed. It was awesome. But while we were there, one of the questions came up with was talking about sermons and sermons that you were preaching, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I, I could tell it wasn't going the way I tried to keep my mouth shut. I really did. It wasn't going the way I thought it should. And, and my, I, st- I said, okay, does anybody f- in this room feel like we're living up to the gospel? None of us in this room, all 16 of us know that Jesus is up here and we're way down here. But we're still preaching the unadulterated word of God. We all feel the gap. There's a gap in all of us. And every one of us in this room, we feel that gap. We know that Jesus is up here, pure, holy, righteous, and we're somewhere down here or down here or down here, don't we? And yet, see, this is what the genealogy does. It shows us that Jesus came for us. And this should change how we feel. Jesus knew that none of those people were going to be righteous. Abraham wasn't the Savior. Uriah wasn't the Savior. Bathsheba wouldn't be the Savior. None of those people could be the Savior. And you and I are not the Saviors either. So we come to Christ. 
And Christ then forgives us. He forgives us from head to toe. That should change how you feel. I have been forgiven. I have been cleansed. I get to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I get gifts I've never earned. I get gifts I don't deserve. I get all this from God. The genealogy from me made me realize that all those really, really good people who messed up royally were not good enough. And neither am I. And neither are you. But that's the power of the gospel. And so the gospel should change how you feel. None of us in this room can live the gospel. None of us in this room can meet the standard. None of us in this room are the Savior. So that changes how we feel. A little bit of peace, a little bit of relaxation. Number two, I think it should change your outlook. Not only should it change how you feel, but for me, this changes my outlook. I'm in the story. You're in the story. If Abraham's in the story, if Uriah's in the story, if Tamar's in the story, if Rahab's in the story, if all these different people are in the story, I'm in the story too, and so are you. You're in the story. You are writing holy history today. Every one of us in this room, we are in this story. We're not the Savior. That's the standard. But we are all in this story. It changes how I feel. And I think it should change. I think it should change your outlook. And so, because I don't feel beat up and I don't feel beat down, I realize that I could never save myself. I realize that all those mistakes that I've made in the past, those are in the past. I've got some chapters in my back that I don't really like, but I'm writing new history. I've got some new sentences, I've got some new books I'm writing. And now I go forward, and that changes me from passivity, number three, to activity. You see, when you don't feel good about yourself, then you're not really going to be active for Christ. Well, who am I? How can I share my faith? How can I teach three-year-olds? How can I ever get involved in the church? If I don't feel like I've been forgiven, if I don't see that I'm in the story, then I I stay passive. Let me just ask you this. How many of you have been kept from going forward because of what you've done in the past. How many times in your life have you been kept from launch? You knew God was whispering to you to do something, to be something, to go somewhere, but but you thought, you know what? I can't do it because I've had this issue. This was spring break back in 73, and, you know, this was the, you know. And so you're going with all those things. I, I can't do that. But you see, this is what Christ does. Christ changes you. Christ changes me. Now, I'm not encouraging anybody in this list, like on number two, to to be a liar and a betrayer and be sexually moral. In fact, I would encourage you to do just the opposite. But we move from passivity to activity. So where are you holding back? We know why. We know why. But where? Where is God calling you to do something with your time, with your money, with your skills. I mean, I mean, I mean really, t- tomorrow. Just take tomorrow. How many of us in this room will hold back from inviting somebody to church because we're afraid that we're not worthy to invite somebody to church? How many of us will do that? 
How many of us will, will worry about something that we've said in the past or something that we've done in the past because we know we don't meet the standard? I, I just want to be really honest with you. Every preacher knows the standard. Every, and if, if a preacher ever thinks he's the fourth member of the Trinity, he's dead meat because you can never live there. You can never live there. You can never be there. But what you do is, is you receive the grace of God just like all of us do, and then we live up to that. Then we, we live in it because we're in the story. So I hope that when you look at these 17 verses that you will feel differently about your life. I got some bad chapters, but I have been forgiven by the Messiah. I hope it changes your outlook I'm not on the outside looking in. I'm in the story. And I hope it moves you to be very active with your faith, whether it's your time or your money or your skills, that you will never be the same again. Well, observation number six to me is is my favorite one. It's more of a macro approach of the entire book of Matthew. Here's observation number six. The whole book, all 28 chapters, All 28 chapters of the book of Matthew sets us up to hear that our greatest fear, whether men, usually our greatest fear is the fear of failure. Ladies, usually the greatest fear for women is the fear of abandonment. That our greatest fear, whether we're male or we're female, our greatest fear won't come true. And our greatest need, our greatest need is guaranteed. God became a man and wanted to guarantee your greatest need. Now, what is that? Well, we start off the book in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It's the Christmas story. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Remember that in the Christmas story? Remember that? And Emmanuel just means God with us. But here's how the book ends. 28 chapters later, the very last scene, Jesus is getting ready to ascend up into heaven. And he gets all the guys together, and there's about 120-some people there. There's a crowd there. And Jesus said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples and teach and baptize. And then he says this, chapter 28, last sentence of the book. The very last recorded words of Matthew are this. Starts off, Matthew 1, 23, Emmanuel, God with us. And the book ends with this. I'm with you always. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You have a Savior. And I have a Savior who's different than everybody else. There's never been a person like Jesus. Every other world religion, you're at the bottom of the mountain. You're at the bottom down here trying to work your way up, do enough good deeds, find a path to somehow satisfy some pseudo-God. Christianity, God goes, they couldn't meet the standard. I'm coming down from the top. I'm leaving the top of the mountain, and I'm coming down to earth. And I will live my life, and I will sacrifice my body and my blood on a cross, and my sacrifice will be for their sins. And it will change how they feel. It will change how they look. And it will change them from being passive to being very, very active. This gospel, it's for you. It's for me. 
and you're in the story and you're writing, you're writing today your holy history. Will you stand with me? I want to ask our prayer partners to come down front. If you're not a Christian, I don't know why you're not. I really don't. If you're not a Christian, I don't understand it. Give your life to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. If you struggle with how you feel, and sometimes maybe ladies struggle with that self-esteem a little bit more than guys do, we struggle with arrogance and pride. Okay, we got other issues. But maybe you're struggling with a little bit of self-esteem. Maybe you want to come down today and be prayed for and be prayed over by one of our wonderful prayer partners. Maybe you want to be active. You want to be, but you're just not quite sure where to fit in or how to do that. Well, again, ask for prayer. Let someone pray for you and pray over you. I want to encourage you to go out in the lobby and sign up for the Walk Through the Bible Conference. I've been through this three times. I can't wait to do it number four. Every time I learn more about the Old Testament and I can connect dots. If you want to understand 77 people, places, and events of the Old Testament, this is a seminar for you. And I would encourage you right now as we dismiss to go out and sign up and we'll have an awesome day. Let me pray over you and for you. Father, I have skipped this genealogy many, many times. Open our eyes to see the validity, the humanity of these people, but the divinity of your story. Jesus, we worship you, our Messiah. In your name we pray, amen.